We need our money. We need it now. I don't got that kind of time because it's the panorama. Okay? General Phillips said, if an artist falls in love with you, you will live forever. In reality, I think if you break an artist's heart, that's how you become immortal. So much beautiful art comes out of heartbreak. There's something about exploring the depths of brokenness that pushes artists to the brink of creative glory. Think about the greats. We've got Tina Turner and pretty much all her stuff. Beyonce's Lemonade, Summer Walker's Still Over It, Take Care, Frida Kahlo's Little Deer, and literally all of Adele's catalog, just to name a few. If it wasn't for some great disappointment, betrayal, cataclysmic moment of devastation, some kind of unearthing, there would be no discovery, reclamation, or innovation. None of the greats would have ever made their devastatingly relatable masterpieces. Well, after three years of chaos, the dust of my situation has settled enough for me to see that it looks like it's my turn. Welcome to Stepdaddy Season. I'm your host, Amber E. <laughs> so I just want to run down a little intro for you guys. I am an East Atlanta native, born and raised. I lived a few other places in the city, but I always came back to the east side. <laughs> Uh, graduated from Carver School of the Arts in Atlanta, homecoming queen and valedictorian. Um, I went to Wesleyan University, <laughs> which was a big culture shock, but also a lot of fun. <laughs> and so I'll probably be telling y'all a little bit about that throughout the series. I'm a mom to a three-year-old that's going on 30. <laughs> You'll probably hear him sometimes. If not in the background, you'll definitely hear him. And, you know, us playing around together. I am an artist wholeheartedly, um, and I'm a divorcee. I kind of think of myself as a professional healer. I'm going to talk to y'all about like some of my intimate situations that I've really had to heal from. I'm going to start with my divorce and kind of just like give y'all that real. I am pretty much an open book. I'm free spirited. I'm loving. I'm feisty. I'm funny. <laughs> I'm a good time, a disability and accessibility advocate. I am somebody who identifies um, as having a physical difference or disability. And I'll speak more about that in my next episode. But yeah, I just want to start off each episode by telling you guys a fun fact about me. So I gave y'all a whole spiel this time, <laughs> but I think it's important because throughout this series, I will be talking about some very traumatic things that I went through. And one thing that I learned in going through all that stuff is I couldn't remember anything about myself. It would be so much going on and it would be so overwhelming, just overstimulating and devastating sometimes that I couldn't remember what my favorite things were. 
I couldn't remember what I liked to do because I was just so much in survivor mode. And so I'm sharing these things about myself with you guys also to remind myself so I'll never, ever forget again. Yeah. And now that's out the way. The story that I'm about to tell you or begin telling you is lengthy. <laughs> Three years of separation, but two full years of me trying to get divorced. There have been ups and downs and rounds and rounds. It literally was plot twist, plot twist. This story I'm about to tell y'all is like a Shonda Rhimes, Tyler Perry, Lifetime Saga mashup, right? With a hint of Issa Rae and a strong shot of me. <laughs> but it's all true. There are times when like I will wake up and be like, this cannot be my real life because it will be so ridiculous that I couldn't even believe it. And I just, I used to wonder like why, like a big thing that I do whenever I'm going through situations is I question like, why? What's the lesson? Sometimes I'll even rush and I'm like, okay, I know this is bad. Like, what do I need to learn? Right. And so this situation, it was just thing after thing. Like (laughs) I had to take my time. Like it was literally like so long. It forced me to sit still and really like reevaluate every single ounce of my life. But it also helped me become fearless. It helped me become who I had always prayed to be because it stripped me of every single thing that I needed to be stripped of. And so now y'all just going to have to get the raw. Like however it comes out is how it comes out. And, you know, hopefully this podcast is for you or really hopefully it isn't because I hope y'all never have to see the things that I've seen in this situation. But just in case it is, I hope that you can find some kind of gems to take. And even if it isn't, I hope that you can laugh with me. You can help celebrate with me, <laughs> reflect with me, you know, and start conversations about how to form healthy relationships and fight for ourselves with integrity, how to maintain your peace and promote your mental health. So this is all about self-celebration, honesty, authenticity. Another thing I'll say about this podcast is that I will not be naming my son's father. So I will not be using his name because I'm a strong believer that this is about me. (laughs) It's not about him. And he's not the one who needs to be remembered. And he will be doing some things. Like he has done some things where you're just like, oh my God, who is this guy? But he doesn't deserve the glory in this. I do. So he will be referred to in two different names. I won't spoil the second one because it's so funny, but (laughs) I'm just going to start off by calling him Judah's dad or JD. So whenever you hear me saying, you know, Judah's dad did this or JD did that, then you'll know I'm talking about my ex who I got divorced from. But anywho, so the story starts for me and JD back in around 2009, I would say Um, we met in church. I would say officially in 2009, but this nigga actually sat in front of me in church for probably like three or four years in front of me in church. I mean, literally right in front of me. So like black people, I mean, people of other cultures probably had it too, but black people really have assigned seats wherever we go. So like whether that's church, class, wherever we're at, if we go to a place like frequently, we have assigned seats. We have areas that we get familiar with and we sit there. So my family sat toward the back and he sat directly in front of me. I want y'all to know this man was around me and I just did not even know. It was literally, I used to look at the back of his head for like church service because he's tall. But anyway, so we went to the same church and I literally thought he was mute because he never talked and that's no shade. I just literally never saw him talk ever and I'm like he must be mute 
But then <laughs> he started laughing at some of my jokes in you church. So I'm like, oh, you can talk. And he was like, yeah. So we kind of just like had a quirky conversation. And I'm really like a like a fiery, feisty, playful type of personality. And so I, I just was like talking junk. And I told him like, you ain't texting nobody if you're not texting me. And he was like, well, I don't have your phone number. And so I gave him my phone number and we literally forgot. He texted me like a month later and honey, I started talking to him like he was this other guy with the same name that I had been wanting to talk to. So that was a real awkward start and I have no shame at all. <laughs> so, uh, but once we did start talking, it was kind of like fireworks from the beginning. It was so intense. It was like a young black twilight type of love. No werewolves, but I will keep the vampires because this nigga is a bloodsucker. Um... <laughs> <laughs> it's really like very passionate all the time it was a very positive relationship honestly we were just really young we were like 18 we got together in 2010 that springtime when i was graduating and we just ran with it so i went off to school in connecticut we cried before i left oh my gosh like there were times when he would drive to come see me in the snow and just like we would go on dates it was so cute it was really really fun in the beginning <laughs> like most relationships are but yeah we were together for like a year and then it just wasn't working with the distance um he did come see me I went and met his family in New York we just we just did everything and I think like as intense as it was and as loving as it was it was also like extremely codependent because we were together joined at the hip all the time but anyway we end up breaking up that springtime I think the distance just got to be too much for him and he was like mm, I'm gonna just I'ma just be doing my own thing. Let's break up and immediately got another girlfriend. And I probably should have noticed this in the beginning. This is something I've really noticed now because of my situation and we'll get to that. But I'm like, wow, I really should have looked at that closer because that kind of was like a mirror of what exactly I'm dealing with right now. But yeah, it was just, I just really didn't think that much about it. I was just like, oh, well, he want to move on. It's cool. Give him his stuff back. Like cry about it and leave. So during that time, I had a best friend named Kentavious. He's just great. So he, everybody down here calls him Tay, you know, who knows him. But um, he really just helped me get through that situation. Like I remember I helped him get over his ex. And so when it came time for me and JD's breakup, he was really there for me. And I remember JD started reaching out maybe a few months later, like sending me songs and stuff. And he was like, well, you know, you can just try to call him. Like, I could tell that you really love him. Um, just reach out. And if he doesn't re reach back, then it is what it is. And so I reached out. He didn't reach back. And I was like, you know what? It's fine. And so I remember Tay telling me, like, you know, if it ever comes back, like, and it's honest, like, give it a try. You never know. And I was like, nah, I'm straight. Like, and I was. Like, I was, I was good. I just was over it, you know? And so Tay and I had been friends since we were 14. And that situation like from me breaking up with JD and on it was just like it made me realize how much I loved Tay like and I always loved him like even when JD and I were together he used to take me to Tay's house before I went to school and when I came back and I would literally spend time with him all the time he knew things about me that nobody knew like, he was the closest person to me at that time right and so there were so many times that he showed me what love looked like and his love was so pure and so powerful that I was terrified. I remember uh, he would always tell me 
Like, he would put the ball in my court, and he'd be like, listen, baby, whenever you're ready, like, for me, then you just let me know. He was just so selfless. He always pushed me toward things that were going to make me happy. And I didn't grow up with a real nurturing type of love, and I had not been in counseling to even explore that. But he was really my first introduction to questioning the way that I was raised, really exploring everything that I deserve, expressing love and being emotionally available. That was my experience with Tay, right? So it was just what love is supposed to be like, you know, very healing type of love. So he used to always tell me, whenever you're ready, like, just hit me up. Like, I don't care if it's years from now. I just see us growing old together. I see me and you being together for the rest of our lives. And I could see it too. And that's what used to scare me. Because we like 20. <laughs> and it's scary knowing that you, you're around somebody that you could be with for the rest of your life. That's a long time, you know. I had never been in a situation with such positive love. So I was so scared that I was going to mess it up that I didn't want to be with him because I can't take hurting this person's feelings or messing this up. Then by the time I got in like my sophomore year, I was like, okay, you know, I think I want to try this out. Like we had been, we just was just, it was always love and it was just always so pure. So I hit him up and I was texting him and I had got my nerve up to tell him that I was ready to really give it a shot. So I text him, but he was with his dad and it was Super Bowl weekend. So I pushed it off and I was like, you know what? Just call me tomorrow and we'll really talk. And he was like, okay, well, I love you. And I was like, I love you too. We'll talk in the morning and we'll, we'll really get to it or whatever. But I never did get the chance to tell him because Tay passed the next day. It's devastating, right? Unexpected. Imagine how I felt in that situation, right? That feeling that you feel right now I felt like that but for years frozen in time and I know you're saying like but what does this have to do with JD what does this have to do with your divorce everything it has absolutely everything to do with it when Tay died my belief in the love like the one we had died a little more every single day with every relationship each time I hit the emotional ceiling with someone I started to believe more and more that I was meant to be alone. I had been living in abundant love for years and now I was operating out of lack. I had lost what at the time was the greatest nurturing love I'd ever known and I was yearning to feel connected to something remotely familiar to that. So I chose the second best person I'd ever loved because the person that I thought I was supposed to be with was dead. The summer after Tay died, JD and I tried to talk again, but he tried to play me on some shysty shit. So I put a good old color purple curse on him, you know, till you do right by me type of shit. And I didn't talk to him for three years straight. We connected again in 2015 through some random Facebook interactions. It was really slow at first, but in a few months, we ended up catching up like no time had passed. I was still super wary of him though this time. So for the first year or so, when we got back together, I asked all of my friends to meet him and to give me honest feedback to decide if it was worth pursuing long-term. The gag is everybody who met him really believed that he loved me to no end. They watched him cater to me through grand gestures and cruise through difficult healing conversations. He built a relationship on love bombs and empty gestures. According to HealthyPlace.com, Love bombing is a breadcrumb trail of compliments, gifts, and expressions of love, all which make you feel safe and valued at the start of a relationship. 
Also described as fake intimacy, love bombing is a common abuse tactic used by narcissists and sociopaths to manipulate situations to their advantage and groom victims before they start abuse. It is the key gaslighting tactic in the idealization phase of abuse, preceding the far more obvious devaluation and discarding stages. It's the perfect way to isolate your victim because it's difficult to pinpoint. It looks like infatuated love to most people. Perpetrators create a strong front of being a good person of good character that understands you and your needs as only a soulmate would. So when the facade begins to fade, you see the version of the soulmate created in your mind. You try everything to get back to them, except you never do because the person you fell for in the beginning was just an illusion. This tactic also provides the perpetrator character witnesses, your family or friends who watch this whole situation unfold, who may try to vouch for this person when the tide changes. Gaslighting is a form of emotional abuse where the abuser manipulates situations repeatedly to trick the victim into distrusting their own memory and perception. Love bombing is the single most effective gaslighting tactic because the kindness presented is based on long-term abuse and manipulation. It makes victims relentlessly question their reality and destroys their self-confidence. Now that we've got a little background, let's get back to the story. In the beginning, JD pulled out all the stops. He was an Instagram boyfriend, okay? He bought my LLC for my birthday, had all of my art copyrighted. He would leave love notes and rose petals all over the house. He moved to Tennessee with me at the drop of a dime and we really started to build a life and he built relationships with all of my friends and loved ones. But because his foundation wasn't really solid, he had nothing to fall back on when things actually did become difficult. He also hadn't done any of the work to learn healthy habits to combat conflict. When you don't do the work to learn healthy habits, you revert back to who you are at your core. And baby, he was traumatized to his core. He was just a master at masking it. From an early age, JD had experienced emotional, psychological, and physical abuse. When we got together, we were both pretty broken. But I'm committed to healing work, so I was in counseling on and off for years, gathering the tools that I needed to heal myself. I leaned into those healing tools while he burrowed himself deeper into his trauma. During one of my sessions nearing the end of my marriage, my therapist told me that because I was working to heal my trauma, while JD hadn't, I had outgrown him in real time during our relationship. It's funny because he always used to tell me how he felt like he didn't deserve me. I don't think he realized that insecurities often manifest into self-fulfilling prophecies. All in all, the first four years we were together were good. It felt like we were growing together, jumping hurdles, forgiving past grievances, and really feeling joy. There was always this underlying feeling of uncertainty that I had, though. Something in my spirit that always questioned the relationship, and I couldn't put my finger on exactly what it was. Now I know that feeling is intuition, and you gotta trust it, baby. <laughs> but something was off in a way, even in good times. JD was really good at picking up on that. So he would come through with a sweet gesture to reassure me that I was his person and we would always find our way back to each other, just as we had done before. 
I was never really big into marriage because my whole family is married. And while I love them, I never seen a marriage that I felt like I could be happy in. I've always seen black women sacrifice their dreams, their bodies, their happiness, their identity, and even their sanity to be a wife and a mother. And I never really resonated with that. I wanted partnership, equity, equal parts and equal say, someone equally responsible so if I needed to pull back, they could pick up the slack as I would if need be. And if I couldn't have that, I always said that I would get me a little dog and I would travel for the rest of my life. And when that dog died, I would get me the same dog and name it the same thing and keep on traveling, okay? My family pressed us so much about getting married for the years that we were together. They always said, just do it. Y'all are in love. Oh, he wants to marry you. Y'all are basically married anyway, shacking up and blah, 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 blah. I just wish people would stop glamorizing marriage as the ultimate goal for black women. I feel like since the age of five, I've been kind of like raised up to be a wife and try to go find me a husband. I've been told to be quiet and like keep my thoughts to myself and really dim my light so a man could shine. And I don't really fuck with that. I just feel like us saying that being married to anyone at all is a problem. I understand the power in partnership, so that's not what I'm talking about. But you have to find a partner that is really your equal. And I mean equal in problem solving, equal in finance, equal mentally, spiritually. Somebody who really is going to be a partner. And I'm not talking gender roles. I'm talking like on a personal level. This person has to be the same caliber of person as you. You know? equally yoked I guess also stop saying that if it doesn't work out that you can always get divorced I took the leap of faith and it took me three years to get out of my marriage and now everybody around me their tune has changed right but anyway back to the story we were married on October 13th 2017 Friday 13th if you're superstitious I'm not on a bridge in downtown Atlanta overlooking the skyline it was a symbolic gesture of us joining together for a life in love. He cried so much that day, I don't know how he had any tears left. Yet and still, it's one of the best days of my life. I had never felt so surrounded by love and so full of joy. Still, the moment that sticks out to me the most was when he leaned across the table during the reception with tears streaming down his face. This was during his mom's speech and he told me the heaviest shit I had heard in a long time. He said, this is the first time I have ever heard my mom say she's proud of me. And that right there was my first glaring alarm bell. Our first year of marriage had some struggles outside of our control, but seemed like we were on the up and up. We had experienced a miscarriage just before we got married that left him a little different. I didn't see much at the hospital when everything happened, but he saw everything. And I could tell that it stuck with him but he never wanted to talk about it. The main thing that still haunts me to this day was the feeling of signing my baby's death certificate and the way that JD blamed himself for all of it when it wasn't either of our faults. We moved on and moved forward as best that we could. We saved our money and worked together to buy a house. We were both in school and doing pretty well. He decided to start exploring real estate, which I wholeheartedly supported, and I was studying art. 
Everything shifted, however, when I found out I was pregnant for a second time in 2018. This was our rainbow baby. And this is when things started to go extremely left. First, he took forever to tell his family that we were expecting even after we were in the clear. It was really weird and they felt some type of way about it with me. And he kind of left me on a limb to clear those things up. Then he started canceling our summer vacations, which we had already paid for. So I could just sit still and not do so much is basically what he was saying. I was still working um, a super demanding nonprofit job that required me to work nearly seven days a week. He told me that I could quit my job and I should just trust him to carry the weight of the household. We did, you know, I did depend on him a lot to help me get the money that I needed for the house. Um, and so we were like, okay, this could work. We might have to dip into our savings a little bit, but we'll be fine. What I didn't realize at that time is that that would mean that I didn't have direct access to the money coming in. Then he started prioritizing his personal goals and specifically his real estate test in front of me. I can understand his motivation to provide, but it was like I no longer had the emotional support that I had experienced in the past. And he wasn't just inattentive, he was mean. It felt like since he knew I was pregnant, he had more leeway to start treating me any kind of way because it wasn't likely that I would or could leave at that moment. He started getting attitudes whenever and wherever. And sometimes I get motion sick while riding in a car. So this one day in my first trimester was super challenging. We're riding and he keeps asking me random questions. And I told him a few times, listen, I'm not feeling well. I don't want to talk and I have an attitude. Please just, just, I don't want to talk right now. So he kept pressing me, kept pressing me and eventually snapped at me. He was like, oh, so you think you're the only one who gets to have an attitude here? And I said, fucking right. I'm the only one who's pregnant. He went off. He was talking about double standards and how he's entitled to feel any kind of way and respond to me any kind of way he wants to, whether I'm pregnant or not. Another time we got to arguing in the doctor's office during my glucose test. Now you have to fast for this test. Being pregnant makes you super nauseous. Then the fasting makes you even more nauseous. And then the little juice that they give you makes you even more nauseous. But the gag is, if you throw up at any moment during this test, then you have to start over. So he's pressing me during the test. And I'm telling him, half whispering and half praying, please just let me get through this test quietly. I'm trying so hard not to throw up. He keeps at it and keeps at it until I get a little snappy. And I'm like, listen, stop talking to me. <laughs> then he takes that opportunity to snap back on me. So I'm crying in his doctor's office because I'm feeling sick to my stomach and sick of this nigga acting like the world revolves around him. Then there was the argument about our wedding photos. This nigga posted on Instagram only pictures of himself solo from our wedding. Not a shot with his family, the pastor, nothing. And when I asked him about it, he told me it's because he's private. If you're so private, why are you posting it all? Why do we even have Instagram? It's weird to only show pictures of yourself when the entire moment was about committing to me especially since the photos that he posted are from the first look, the moment of anticipation right before you see your bride. So in a real summer walker, what was you telling her? And what was you telling me type of moment? He told me, oh, I understand you and where you're coming from and I can empathize, right? Then he took the conversation to a mutual friend and told her I was tripping. It was his life and it was his page and he could post whatever he wanted and I would just have to be okay with that. Now I'm glad my good sis told me, you know, she kept me in a loop. 
But I saw her verbatim. Your friend is on some weird shit. And if he doesn't get his shit together, I'm dropping this baby and then I'm dropping him. There's this weird thing that black people do where they leave women alone when they get married or pregnant or both and let you get used to being a wife and a mother. I know that y'all think this is respectful, but I also need y'all to know that it's very dangerous as it leaves us on an island, okay? And if things start to go left, like in my situation, it leaves us with the responsibility of having to reestablish that network of support. So please keep reaching out to your friends. I promise if she's busy, she will just text you later, okay? Keep that door open because you never know when we'll need to run to you for help or for safety. So I started reaching out to my friends during this time and just telling them, hey, things are getting weird and I need support, right? And so we were all hoping and praying for the best, but things turned out how they turned out. I ended up sleeping alone by choice for about four months of my pregnancy. I cried myself to sleep just about every one of those nights. It's something about watching a man sleep so peacefully next to you when they know that you're hurting that just makes it unbearable for me. Even still, I made time to study with him my whole pregnancy to help him pass his real estate test. I gave him space and I told myself, hey, once this nigga passes this test, if things don't change, then you really know it's over and you know you have to leave. My only saving grace in the situation was that I had my sweet baby to bond with in a really smooth pregnancy. Judah gave me a fire inside. He let me know that it was us in this and we had to choose our well-being overall. Very sparingly throughout my pregnancy, JD would buy cards and flowers, little gifts here and there to pacify the situation as much as he could. He'd apologize for being so distant and pledge to be like old times. Empty gestures, really. Band-aids on bullet wounds. Pregnancy was hard, but postpartum is really when he tried to break my spirit. He showed up for me in labor, which was really like a little last glimmer of hope, I guess. My nurse was a raging lunatic, so my labor was unnecessarily difficult and resulted in me having to have a C-section. But JD did his best to be present and supportive. I'm not sure if it was because my family was there the entire time or if he really had a change of heart for that moment, but I'll let y'all decide. I remember all these older black women coming to the house to visit me, right? Like all my family and stuff. And they would have these coaching talks with me about remembering to take care of your husband and his needs as they came to visit me in Judah. Make time to cater to him, they would say. You need to keep your home happy. Like it's something I can manage on my own, fresh out the hospital and out of surgery. Whole time, this nigga wouldn't even wash my breast milk soil clothes so I could have clean stuff to wear. He also wouldn't feed me because he says smoothies weren't enough food when I asked for them. I don't understand how you not feeding me at all is any better than you giving me what I can stomach. So when I had my family visit, they set me up with a little mini fridge that they stocked with fruit and snacks that I could grab as I healed upstairs. He took paternity leave and just sat there and played Apex from sunup to sundown. And to this day, I fucking hate that game. I know all the songs and all the characters, bitch. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to do no battle royale. Leave me out of it. He will only take small breaks during the day, you know, every few hours, I guess, just to make sure Judah and I were still breathing. It was like I was invisible and Judah was too. I couldn't even really nap because when it was his turn to watch Judah, he would lay the baby across his lap and play the game right above Judah's head while he cried the whole entire time. And I don't know about y'all, but 
it's just something in me that like I can't hear my baby crying. It's like a dog whistle. Like <laughs> I can't do it. So I would just tell him to give the baby to me and I would thug it out. Right? Luckily, Judah and I had each other. He was the sweetest little gift. We laughed together and got to know each other and just loved each other. And I loved every single second of it. It was really joy in the midst of darkness. My baby showed me that I was such a good mama and I never, ever had a reason to doubt myself. I started working at a nonprofit right before I gave birth and they phased out my position while I was on leave and created a new one that paid way less. So the commute to Buckhead wasn't worth it anymore. I was hired by my current job, but they wanted me to check back after my maternity leave. So I was in a weird limbo that showed me firsthand how little job security there is for expecting moms in this country. During that time, I found out JD was sending money outside of the house instead of using it to pay bills. He first sent money to a friend in Egypt for her school books. Just so y'all know, this nigga didn't even buy his own books for school. Then he sent money to his sister repeatedly when she was in between. Now, his older sister would pay him back, but it was something about her even asking that I think is just fucked up, especially with us having a new house and a newborn. I also think it's incredibly self-serving of this nigga to make financial decisions without me and prioritizing other people over his wife and his newborn just to feed his ego and save face for his own image. Things got so bad that I had to start asking my family for money. I had zero dollars in my bank account. So my brother even had to start sending me something every chance he could so I could have something for myself. Money was so low and so mismanaged that I used to have to grocery shop at my parents' house. I applied for food stamps, but I kept having problems with my application, so I had to spend the whole day in the office waiting to speak with the rep. Honestly, this was easily one of the best early decisions that I made to this day. I ate the best I ever have on those food stamps. <laughs> and I stocked up enough food for my baby and I to eat for six months after they were cut off. I remember JD's younger sister shading me. Y'all, she told me my husband loves me too much to let me sit in a food stamp office. So when I apply, he told me, uh-uh, honey, get up because I won't subject you to this. In my mind, I'm like, girl, I know you lying because I just had to teach you to lie. My cousins tell Georgia Power to cut their lights back on so they could cut yours back on because you $600 past due. But okay, go off, Sadidi. Shortly after this is when I got the first letter of collection to my house for the alarm system. It's something that JD got installed. I remember asking him, like, you did all the research. How much does it cost? When I got that bill for $3,500, I never knew. And they said my name because the house is in my name. Horrifying. I'm breastfeeding my baby and getting letters about bills, right? The gag is I found out he didn't pay this bill from that letter. <laughs> And I had the money and could have been paying the bill all along. So I'm taking care of this baby 24-7, checking in about bills, and he's not even telling me the full scope of what's going on. And it really sucks because you should be able to trust your partner during such a delicate time. But he was so busy keeping up appearances outside of the house to even take care of home. Yet still, I exhausted all of my resources trying to work it out. I tried sending him songs reading articles about male postpartum depression. I tried to make special dinners, just different ways to connect and nothing was working. All he did was buy cards to apologize, no follow-up conversations, no engagement. He would always ask for time to process and talk tomorrow, which I respect. 
But when I follow up with him for the promised conversation, it got flipped to, oh, why can't you let this go? Why is this always a thing, even though we were supposed to talk about it? He just wanted to have small talk, dance around issues until maybe I forgot, but I'm not forgetful. <laughs> then he started disrespecting me in front of his family. So one night I opened up to him shortly after giving birth. This was maybe like two weeks. So around the end of March, 2019, I really poured out my heart to him and I told him I felt invisible day in and day out. I discussed the pressures of having to report my nurse for malpractice during my labor and I was just having a hard time. I really was just asking him to really show up for me. And he promised that he would. The very next day, his family came over to the house for his niece's birthday dinner. It was a really nice gesture. They planned to have the dinner at the house because I had just had surgery, so I couldn't leave. And they wanted me to be included in the festivities. So I called downstairs to him for a new pacifier and he didn't answer. Instead, I heard his brother-in-law and sister tell him that I needed him. And he responded, yeah, I hear her calling me, but I just ignore Amber when I don't feel like talking to her. And that was like a dagger into my heart, honestly. Nobody left. It was literally a yikes type of reaction to the situation. He came upstairs trying to sweet talk and smooth things over. Oh, it was a joke. Chill, chill. So my feelings are a joke to you, is what I said. No, 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 not your feelings. No, they, they weren't a joke. I'm just saying I was joking. Okay, so either you're lying or my feelings are a joke. Which one is it? This nigga was so dumbfounded trying to rationalize some bullshit and I was not going for none of that shit. So I just left the house. I left them with the baby. It was breast milk in the fridge and I dipped. I went to my parents' house and I was hysterical. I called my sister and I'm like, Ashley, oh my God, I'm getting divorced. And she was like, you need to calm down like you're hysterical. And I'm like, no, this nigga is really treating me bad. He's out of pocket. And she's like, I understand that's really fucked up, but don't worry. Like you guys need to go to counseling. And I'm like, I've tried everything. I can't do anything else. And she's like, well, you have to exhaust all your resources. You're a wife. And you know, she was just trying to be a good sister to me. And I was just like, I gotta, I gotta find some other people <laughs> because this shit is not right. Like, you know, it just wasn't. So I ended up hooking up with my, with my friend Quanisha, my brother and my friend Paisley. And I told them, look, this situation is getting to be very bad and I'm gonna have to leave. It just was not, it was not a good situation. So I promised my sister, okay, I'll give it another shot. So I go home and he comforted me and assured me, you know, it wasn't the case that he didn't respect me and all this other stuff. He was really going to be there for me and he was going to show up. But then he started trying to distance me from my family. So he tried to take the pressure off of him by bringing up my issues with my family. He would do this thing where he would talk between me and my parents, never banking on the fact that even if we didn't see eye to eye and we had, you know, history of a little bit of dysfunction between us, we could still tell each other the truth. And that's my favorite thing about our relationship. No matter where we are in our stage of our relationship, we always told each other the truth. So he would apologize to me and tell me, oh, you know, I'm just not showing up for you and I'm going to be better and do better and I'm going to do everything I can. Then he would flip it and go to my parents' house without me and tell them, oh, Amber's just slipping into postpartum. She's really fragile. She's having a horrible time. And, you know, I'm doing everything that I can to support her. It's just really hard because everything I'm doing, she's just very ungrateful. So when I found out he was doing it, I brought it to him. 
And I was like, oh, so you telling my family I got postpartum? You ain't even had a conversation with me. I'm trying to talk to you, and you ignore me every day. He's like, oh, no, I didn't tell them that. I said that maybe I'm not being there for you. And I told him verbatim what he said. I just cut that shit off. I'm like, no, this is what you said. He was like, okay, well, if I did say that, then, you know, it wasn't really like that. I'm like, okay, whatever. He's like, the real issue we need to talk about is why your parents don't respect you. And I'm like, look at this nigga trying to point the finger at somebody else. All right, let's get into it. So he's like, the gag is your parents don't respect you. That's, and that's the real issue. I said, okay. But you don't respect me either. So let's talk about that. I said, I don't know what kind of women that you used to talk to, but I'm the type that can multitask, okay? You don't respect me, they don't either. Guess what? They haven't been respecting me for 26 years. Great, dealing with that. But you, I just had a baby with you and I'm married to you. We just got here. This is the real issue. I live with you, okay? So what you need to do is stop throwing stones at these people outside this house and tell me how you gonna really make some changes inside this house because it's been a whole bunch of bullshit and I'm sick of it. I wish I could have seen this man face. He was so shook up. It was like anything he was throwing at me, I was knocking that shit out. Okay, and what? What is the follow-up? Because you sound stupid trying to point the finger at everybody else when you are fucking up in this house. So when that didn't work, then he tried a different tactic. My love language is feeling understood. So he really started to attack that in our relationship. I always really felt like he really understood me. He really saw me. He started to tell me that after all the years that we were together, he really didn't understand me at all. He just pretended like he did. He straight up told me that he always thought that he was a sociopath. He said that he said and did whatever he needed to do to keep me happy because this whole thing was a challenge to see if he could really get me back and how far it could go. When I told him that he never thanked me for carrying our baby, he told me I was the one who was welcome. He even went as far as to call me his surrogate. He told me that my birth and my C-section weren't that bad because he had surgery in his hand so he understood exactly what I went through. There were times where out of the blue, he would encourage me to sign over my parental rights to him for literally no reason at all other than ego. He would tell me that I was an independent woman that never wanted to be a mother anyway. I just wanted to travel so I should sign over my rights, give up my son, and go travel and let him raise my baby. And in my mind, I'm like, this apex playing ass nigga who can't even stop playing a game think he gonna raise my baby? What are we even talking about? There were so many times that I had to look at this nigga in his eyes and wholeheartedly ask him if he was stupid. Because what the fuck sense did any of the shit make that he was saying about his mouth? But baby, hold on, cause it gets worse. <laughs> this nigga went on to tell me that the main reason he asked me to marry him was because we had a miscarriage and he wanted to make me feel better. Mm-hmm. Now I do believe that he asked me to marry him because of the miscarriage. But I do think that he did that to make himself feel better. He has this complex about being responsible for loss that I never ever carried. He's the king of grand empty gestures, remember? And just to put the icing on the cake, he said that the whole marriage was my fault because I was independent and I never wanted to be married. So when he asked me to marry him, I should have said no. And to that I said, boy, fuck you. <laughs> and I should have said, and fuck your mama too, because what the hell is this? 
I asked this nigga so many times, are you sure? Are you sure you want to do this? Like, you really want to do this? Yes. We have been talking about marriage for years, and that's what kind of changed my mind. What you're not going to do is make everything my fault in this situation. Like, I'm just really glad that I had a strong enough mind, even in the midst of dealing with everything that I was dealing with postpartum, to know that this nigga was on some motherfucking bullshit. It scares me because so many women are in this position where they're dealing with men like this. And it's such a fragile time that these thoughts can seep in and you can start thinking that they're your thoughts and they're not. Girl, Godspeed. Then this man has the audacity that only a fuck nigga could to ask me if his oldest sister and adult niece could move in with us so she could save money to buy a house. Sis was not on hard times. She just needed a place to save up. She told him that she would pay us $400 a month. All right. Now, I have a three-bedroom, two-and-a-half-bath townhome. At this point, Judah has a room and his bathroom. JD and I are sleeping separately, right? So that leaves all of our rooms occupied. Also, our bills at this time are $2,200 a month. So that little $400 to make me uncomfortable and have to sleep next to this shitty-ass nigga? Ew, what are you talking about? And if that wasn't enough to make y'all gag, I guarantee this will. The last time his older sister lived with another family member, their entire immediate family got to fighting each other and the police got involved. The end result was his sister and her daughter were the reason child endangerment charges were pressed on a family member that they were staying with. Luckily, the charges were dropped, but because this family member has an arrest record, they've been unable to get a stable job since this happened in 2015. What? <laughs> Why would I invite this type of chaos into my house for $400? What are we doing? What are we doing? What are we doing? His sister is pretty built, stacked up, and that's no shade. She looked good. She's just a very solid woman, right? She stands about six feet tall. She's a very strong alpha woman personality. I'm just going to tell y'all straight up. I'm an amputee. I'm 5'3". I'm petite. Right? So I got one hand and I got a cute little arm. Ain't no motherfucking way I'm about to be in my house getting $400 a month to be potentially getting my ass tossed around my house, baby. <laughs> and I'm outnumbered. So all I got to do is get in an argument with the mama or argument with the daughter. And then they both on my ass and they both like a foot taller than me. So it's like, baby, what are we doing? I'm not finna let y'all come in my house for $400 to potentially be beating my ass. I know my limitations. I'm not finna play. I'm not finna play. Mm -mm. And I'm fresh out of surgery. It's not equal footing, sweet. It's not. <laughs> Common sense should have told his sister. She knew. She No, she knew because she knew not to bring this shit to me because she knew I was going to say no. <laughs> Common sense should have told his sister absolutely fucking not. And this nigga should have known that it was an absolutely positively not. I told him when he brought it to me, I knew that he did that on purpose so he could put the blame on me and tell her I said no. He made me the scapegoat with everything that played out, right? From the early beginning. And I knew he set it up like that. And I could see it now because he wanted me to be the fucking villain of the situation and the common enemy to unite them after a lifetime of dysfunction. So once that situation got rocking, his whole family was cool and they all hated me. But we'll get to that. Eventually, we got to a stalemate where we never really resolved anything. So after about two months of trying to see his perspective to no avail, I decided I had enough. 
I remember how down and exhausted I was when I was fighting for the relationship. I felt like I was becoming a bitter bitch begging for love. And I'm really not the type of woman to ask a nigga for nothing, right? I watched this man love bomb me, try to break down my sense of self, my sense of reality, distance me from my family next, make me feel like an inadequate partner and a shitty mother. He wanted me to feel low, but this nigga didn't realize who the fuck he was talking to. Then I had an epiphany. It's not the baby blues, cause I love being a mom. It's that I have a piss poor ass partner. <laughs> the moment I knew my relationship was over was when I was trying to put my son to bed and I was screaming for my ex to come upstairs to kill this huge spider. And he didn't show up. It was not a peep, baby. It may be small to y'all, but it was very symbolic to me. And I feel like that nigga left me for dead. After that, I asked him to leave the house. And this was about in June 2019, right? He wasn't present. So I'm like, you might as well just go. So I packed up his stuff real nice, very hospitable. And I told him, just leave. Go to your mom's house, figure your shit out. He went there for a few days. But after talking to my dad and his mom, he came back and was like trying to work it out or whatever. So I started talking to him about next steps. Like, were we getting separated? Are we trying to work it out? What are we going to do? And he assured me that, you know, we needed to go to counseling. He was going to find a counselor. We were dedicated to making the marriage work. He said that we could, like, take time to ourselves to refocus as individuals, you know, because so much had changed with my pregnancy. And I was honestly sick of focusing on everybody else's needs, and I needed to reclaim my own identity aside from the relationship. So I started to really consider what it would mean for me to be separated and or start over. The thing is, like... He would really be like, you know, you can just do whatever you need to do and I'm going to be here. I'm going to hold down the fort. Like, you don't have to worry about anything. I remember telling this nigga two times. I told him, listen, if we get separated, if I find out you're talking to anybody else, I'm going to be pissed off. I'm going to be livid because you keep talking about working it out. I feel like you run to people and you just like have to have somebody. If you do that, I'm never going to forgive you. Right. I also talked to him repeatedly about counseling. I had been talking to him about counseling for years, right? So I'm like, if we're going to go to counseling, let's do it. But I'm going to tell you two times, if I find out you're talking to somebody, I'm going to be pissed. And he's like, I'll never do that. Like, I would never. Mm-hmm. Then there was the night that changed everything forever. So around the end of July, my friend Vicky came in from New York, and it was really cool. JD and I were laughing again, just feeling like we were cool. You know, it felt friendly, like we were friends. So I remember him telling me how he felt like I really needed to get back to myself. And if I wanted to just talk to people, he could understand that. Fishy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know y'all can see where this is going. He said that he was getting himself together and he would hold it down, right? We were spending quality time and we had like, you know, a few little nights, little date nights and stuff. We had some intimate nights because, you know, I had my needs and he does too. And then when my friend came to visit, we went out to this club called the U-Bar. And JD and I had been vibing like old times, so I invited him out. But he ended up staying at home just at the last minute to watch Judah, just for us to have a girls' night. So the next day, my friend left, and JD ended up taking her to the airport. It was really cool. But later that night, he had a conversation that was really peculiar. He was sitting outside our house in the backyard. It's just 10 o'clock. He's on the phone. And I could hear him, like, laughing and stuff. But he took the, he's sitting in the dark, not even with the light on outside. 
and I have been upstairs feeding the baby so I kind of hear him talking from my bedroom window and so I go downstairs and he's out there for maybe like 30 minutes and he comes back in and he's like that was a real estate client and I'm like right at 10 o'clock he's like yep mm-hmm mm-hmm I'm not stupid so I have to wake up in the middle of the night to breastfeed anyway I go in there and I get his phone right I look through it this nigga has been talking to women for the past week right dating apps dating apps text messages meetups like he has been out here right it's text messages specifically with the person he was on the phone with and he was like yeah you know even if i don't meet up with you for real estate i'm gonna we gonna see each other right so i'm i'm livid so i wake him up and i'm like get up get up like i saw everything in your phone and he was like what what i was like i saw everything in your phone and i just have one question for you what photos did you use on those dating apps and he was like what I said, you hear me talking to you. I said, I know you you got dating apps on your phone. You don't have any recent pictures. The last recent pictures you have are from our wedding. So I'm gonna ask you this one time. Are you using photos from our wedding on your dating apps? Cause those are the best pictures you had. And he looked me square in the eyes and I know he didn't want to tell me. And he says, yes, I am. Well, y'all, that wraps it up for this episode. <laughs> you can go ahead and tune in for part two. I'm going to drop the other half. I was going to leave y'all on a cliffhanger, but lucky for y'all, I've been trying to get everything together. <laughs> so you can go ahead and click up to the next episode. So we can wrap this one right up because y'all thought this was a little roller coaster. It's about to be full speed ahead now. Thank you for tuning in for this episode of Stepdaddy Season. Now, all resources for this episode will be included in the show notes. Please take time to go and look at those articles if you need some more information about gaslighting and love bombing. I will have a mini show coming out next week so we can do a deep dive into love bombing, gaslighting, and other tactics that people use in relationships to manipulate their partners. I'm hoping my mini sods will give us time to process together and really learn some of the psychology behind these problematic behaviors in our relationships so we can know what to avoid and how to directly combat these issues in our lives. This show is executive produced and written by me, Amber Inadehi. Music for this podcast is executive produced by Malcolm X. You can follow him on Instagram at I am Malcolm X underscore. You'll also be able to find his information inside my show notes. If you like the art and advertisements that you see, those are produced by Artistically Esoteric LLC. You can follow us on Instagram at Artistically ESO. This information will also be provided in the show notes. And remember, it's fine if you come for the mess, as long as you stay for the message. See you next time, shawty. Judah. <laughs> yeah, what? <laughs> yeah, what? <laughs>